So 2 Samuel chapter 5, and that's page 304 if you're going in the blue Bibles. All of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron, and he said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, Anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are David's enemies. That is why they say, The blind and lame will not enter the palace. David then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of David. He built up the area around it from the terraces inward. And he became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent envoys to David, along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a palace for David. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. These are the names of the children born to him there. Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibvah, Elishua, Nephek, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, 
but circle around behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Giza. Well, thanks, Leah, and good morning again, everyone. It is great to have you with us as we continue our series in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, the sermons so far are up on the website as well as ours from 1 Samuel last year. But if you're jumping in today or uh, maybe first time with us, a particularly warm welcome to you, or if you simply can't remember where we're up to in the story, today's reading brings us to a point in history that the people of God have greatly anticipated. David finally becomes king over all of Israel and Judah. Now, as the previous king, Israel's first, Saul came to power, we, the reader, weren't really expecting much. The people were rebelling over God's kingship over them and asking for a king. God explained to them in fairly detailed ways that it wasn't going to end very well, yet he gave them the kind of king that they wanted, and it was, in many regards, a national disaster. In contrast, however, as David becomes king, we're awaiting with eager expectation, as we know that he is the king God chose at his own initiative, described by God as a man after his own heart. Now, I'd like in this chapter that we've just read to a collage of images to give us an idea of what the kingdom is going to be like under David. You know what a collage is when you, you know, walk past a travel agent, for example, and there's a, a poster up advertising some package deal to Norway. There'll always be a photo of a cruise liner on a beautiful fjord, another snap of a couple walking in a quaint little village, and maybe the shot of a great train journey. It's a collage. It's setting your expectations on what a trip to Norway will be like. This chapter in 2 Samuel sets expectations for us to know how the kingdom of God is going to fare under David. But this is more than just an interesting history lesson for us because it teaches us some timeless things about how God works. It helps to set our expectations in a very different time and place, in a different episode of God's great unfolding plans for our world. And I'm very keen for us to learn from what 2 Samuel teaches us. Because we can have great expectations about what God is doing in our world today. Expectations that can withstand the many challenges we face as God's church here on earth. As we seek to share the great news of Jesus with many and teachers were instructed by Jesus to lovingly obey and serve our great King as we build each other up. And I think having greater clarity on what to expect actually gives us focus as a church it grounds us in life, it gives us greater resilience together, greater joy, greater depth, greater richness in life. So we're going to unpack this collage of the kingdom uh, during David's reign, see some amazing things about our great God and let it shape our expectations of what it means to live under our great King Jesus today. And if you're here today uh, checking out who Jesus is, an especially warm welcome to you and I hope you find today really helpful. So if you haven't already, open up to 2 Samuel chapter 5, which is on page 304 of the Blue Bibles on your seats, and we can have a look at it together. And as we begin, I think the fact that this is a collage 
should be obvious to the careful reader. In verses 1 to 5, David is anointed as leader of Israel and Judah and we're kind of given the big picture numbers on how long he reigns for. We then get a battle story as David takes Jerusalem, followed by what I would call a flash forward, kind of says how it all pans out and we're told that over time David builds up the city and becomes more and more powerful. Verses 11 and 12 talk about the king of Tyre sending envoys, materials, a bunch of tradies from high pages to David's place to build a palace. And the original readers would have known what we can learn from any good study Bible today that brings in some historical facts, that Hiram, king of Tyre, and David's reign only overlapped by about 10 years right at the end. So this is again another flash forward to something that happens right at the end. Then we're brought back decades earlier to hear that David takes many concubines and wives as he takes Jerusalem and then over time more children were born to him. Then we step back in verse 17 to early on in David's reign, probably just days or weeks after his anointing, as the Philistines hear about it and they don't want a united kingdom under David so they decide to attack. Often when we read the Bible we just assume it's written chronologically But as I hope I've shown to the careful reader, we can see that the author of 2 Samuel feels no such compulsion to write that way and quite deliberately gives us a collage of different aspects of David's reign. So the question then is, what are we to make of this collage? Well, I've kind of given it away this week in the sermon outline in your leaflets because you'll see that point one there, that I think we're to take away that this kingdom is being built on the promises of God, in verses 1 to 10. Now, the first promise is pretty easy to spot. Uh, In verses 1 and 2, as the tribes of Israel come to David in Hebron, Hebron, I did that at 9 o'clock as well, where he'd already been reigning as king of Judah for over seven years. And they say, basically, you're our own flesh and blood, you've been fighting our battles, but most importantly, they acknowledge that David becoming king is God's will and that is publicly known. As they say, verse 2, And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. What they're acknowledging there is that the promises of God don't fail. They know, as they stand there, that David was promised this many years ago and he's been facing pretty fierce opposition ever since from Saul. God's promises, they acknowledge, are certain no matter what opposition they meet. The second promise God is fulfilling in this chapter, uh, in verses 6 to 10, is a little easier to miss as David takes Jerusalem. Now, we could have a look at these verses and plumb all the interesting archaeological insights that shed some light on what they're talking about with the blind and lame and uh, David's troops coming up the water shaft... Uh, I quite like, uh, it grabbed my attention this week, the quite cocky claim from the Jebusites, verse 6, as they mock David. They say, you will not get in here, even the blind and lame can ward you off. Now, that's not a bad little catchphrase for today's news cycle and things on Twitter, a pretty handy little turn of phrase, of course, unless you have to then eat those words, as David captures the city. So famous was the victory, so famous was the mocking, they were actually told it becomes a saying, it almost becomes a proverb, verse 8. But I think the real gold here 
is noticing that it's the Jebusites that have been defeated and what that means for the people. Ever since Moses first led the people out of Egypt, we've been hearing this promise from God again and again that he's going to give his people the land and drive out the nations before them. And every time this promise comes up, and it's riddled through the book of Exodus, Joshua, Deuteronomy, places like that, they list off all the uh, nations that are going to be driven out. So as Moses uh, stands on the edge of the promised land, he can't go in, he's giving his kind of final fire-up sermon series, which we have recorded for us in Deuteronomy. As he instructs the people on how to live when they get in there, he does so in the context of repeating the promises of God. So Deuteronomy 7 verse 1, for example, Moses is saying to the people as the instructions, he says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations larger than you, and then away he goes giving the instruction. But it's just one example of this promise of God being repeated again and again and again for generations. Each time it is, the nations are listed off and each time it is, the Jebusites are left to last on the list. Now, it can be a little uh, tricky again to just kind of keep all the chronology in order as we do these things. But by the time David comes to the throne, as we hear today... God's people had been in the promised land for generations. So you think, oh, okay, well, you know, everyone's been driven out, all is good. But we actually know from the book of Judges that we studied a few years ago that one of the pockets that didn't, uh, they didn't kind of overcome the resistance uh, was to get rid of all the Jebusites. So Moses, he died before entering the land. Joshua, his successor, took them in. And after, we, uh, after his death, we read of it being divided up in the book of Judges and we actually read there, as Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb who drove out the three sons of Anak, the Benjamites however did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. So there's still Jebusites sitting in Jerusalem, the soon-to-be capital of God's kingdom. So, given it was already a saying, this whole blind and lame thing, it's kind of, it's no wonder that it kind of started trending on Twitter, hashtag blind and lame, as David finally drives out the Jebusites and comes to his throne. David's kingdom was being founded on the promises of God being delivered against fierce opposition, but also over the course of time, as it was some 800 years, give or take, between when God made the promise about the Jebusites and when he delivered. I think that's very instructive for us who often live and just kind of take a little snapshot of how the Kingdom of God is going in the world today to be reminded that no matter what the passing of time is, no matter what the strength of the opposition against God's purposes being fulfilled, we worship a God who always keeps his promises. None of them have an expiry date, None of them fall to the ground. Verses 11 and 12 show us another aspect of David's reign after Hiram, king of Tyre, sends in Channel 9, Scotty Cam and his tradies to build David a beautiful palace that we read about in verse 12 towards the end of his reign. And we read these words, verse 12. Then David knew that the Lord had established him 
as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. David, as he gets to the end of his reign, gets precious insight that so many kings, so many leaders, so many pastors, so many politicians have gotten wrong, that with power comes the responsibility to use it in the service of the people. David is acknowledging here that him becoming king, as glorious as it was, wasn't actually the main game. It was a means to an end for God. David's kingship had been exalted for the sake of God's people. And I think it's one of the many wonderful ways that David gets us ready to see just how wonderful our ultimate King Jesus is. Who even being fully God, fully man, said that even he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And of course we know he walked that talk all the way to the cross, all the way to his crucifixion, to bear the weight of our sin on his shoulders so that all of us who believe in him don't have to bear that weight to our own death. What a king we have in Jesus. What a wonderful saviour who rose again from the grave in triumph over death and keeps working today to build his church here on earth, telling us that nothing will prevail against it and he will never leave us. Verses 13 to 16 bring us uh, down from such lofty heights for a minute as we see another part of the collage of David's kingship, the compromise that mars the kingship. Lots of kids in the day is a great sign of David's strength, yet many wives and concubines is a sign of David's folly. Culturally acceptable in the day to be sure, but in direct violation of God's prescriptions for the covenant king, as noted in Deuteronomy 17. I actually find it really sobering to consider David's very special place in God's unfolding plans. The greatest king who ever lived, considered friend of God, worthy of a mention in the first line of the New Testament, out of all the names that could have been pulled out in Jesus' genealogy, we read this. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David. Even he, exalted so highly, was a mixed character with some pretty grave sins and failings that marred the kingdom of God. And part of our collage here points us towards that. And I think the fact that it's there is deeply instructive for us, the people of God in God's church today. The kingdom of God progressed wonderfully under David's reign, not because David was perfect, but simply because God had willed it to be so. God is more than capable of building his church today through flawed people too, which I don't know about you, I find tremendously encouraging (laughs) and a great relief. But more importantly, it should set your expectations A good portion of our growth as a church comes from people checking back into church for the first time in 5, 10, 15 years. Many with painful stories of church splits over power, money, the pastor sleeping with someone who's not their wife, spiritual abuse, and they're all very sad. And let me be clear, 
there are sins a leader can commit which does count them out of being an elder in the church permanently. So please don't hear me trying to lower the bar here. If those things aren't dealt with well, clearly and publicly, it's right to leave a local church over such things. But my point is this, don't let it shake your confidence in Jesus or in his work in the world through the local church. It is his delivery point for this great news of the gospel, this great news of Jesus' salvation that he offers to all. When churches implode, when people let you down, don't be surprised, mourn, absolutely. But don't lose your faith in Jesus, don't lose your love of the church. Jesus is the one who has got this. He can and will continue to build his church through flawed and broken people. And it's one of the many reasons any healthy church will point you away from any kind of personality cult, any exhortation of its leaders. And it's so prevalent today with blogs and podcasts and things like that. And instead, week after week, sermon after sermon, point you to Jesus and actually cultivate your love and obedience to Him, to draw your affections to Him. Because only Jesus will never let you down. And the final point from today's passage passage is we see quite clearly in our collage of the kingdom under David that it grows by the protection and the power of God. In verses 17 to 25, and we'll skim through this because it comes up again. As the Philistines seek to destroy David, God protects his king and therefore the people through his guidance. Twice we see David inquiring of God, Twice God protects by directing his people through directing their king. And on both occasions, where the power lies is very clear. We see this image, verse 20 and 24, for example, of God being, of God being the one who kind of bursts forth, breaks out and goes ahead of his people and in front of David's army, bringing victory and saving people through their king it makes a very clear point that it is God who saves and that we don't serve a God who somehow needs our help. He is the one who comes out in power for the sake of his people. He does the saving. Now, what are we to make of all of this today? I actually think there's so many uh, themes here that we could explore because it's a collage of the kingdom and they actually come out through the rest of 2 Samuel, almost tripped myself up by trying to say too much today and uh, rewrote the ending this morning. So, in anticipation of returning to much of this in the series, I think I just want to focus on one point for now. And that is for us to have greater expectations for the ongoing growth of God's kingdom this week, this year and over the course of our lives. And not only great expectations, but right expectations... Because it's easy enough to fire us all up on a Sunday morning for such things, but it can feel like a very different proposition on Monday morning, looking around the office at work and thinking, I reckon I'm the only follower of Jesus here, or at the school drop-off, or on the building site, or at high school, copying flack for openly declaring that you follow Jesus. We need to remind ourselves at those moments of the promises of God and that He's the one who's prepared good works in advance for us to do. He's promised to gift. 
He's promised to equip us, sustain us and provide everything we need to walk faithfully in the good works He has prepared for us. And that God is the one who is bringing His promises to completion. There will be not one person more, nor one person less standing in heaven than God intends. That God has brought into His family forever. He has started a work and He will complete it. And as we seek to live faithfully today, we serve God's anointed and perfect King Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. God's greatest work for us clearly is His work on the cross. But it was not the end of His work. We serve a risen Lord Jesus who promises to build His church and to always be with us as we seek to uh, work for Him in doing so. But it's Jesus who is not going to stop working. He is not going to stop saving. He's not going to stop building and He's not going to stop serving until every one of God's people is secured in God's new creation, as we've seen in Revelation last year, free from all pain, all suffering, experiencing unimaginable blessing that we cannot even comprehend in a heavenly city so safe that its gates need never be closed. That is the Jesus we follow, that is the Jesus who serves us and builds His church. And Jesus, in His role as Chief Shepherd of the Church, will continue to guide it, He'll continue to protect it with great power, even in the face of fierce opposition, God drives His purposes forward. Even the dark moments of persecution and martyrdom, Jesus achieves His purposes and safely brings His people home to be with Him for all eternity. If you look back over the last 2,000 years, in some countries the church has flourished, then almost been wiped off the map, appearing to lie dormant for generations, then it springs back to life again. Let us continue to trust in a God in these moments, for a God for whom 800 years between making a promise about the Jebusites and delivering it on His people, for His people, is but just a heartbeat. And don't let our own fallenness or sin and the shortcoming and sins of others cause us to doubt as we stumble along and realise that God's church here on earth is not perfect. It's actually full of flawed and sinful people like you and I. God advanced His kingdom wonderfully in David's time through a man with some pretty serious flaws and some grave sins. And in doing so, He showed us that the kingdom of God doesn't grow by our strength, but simply because God wills it to grow He's promised that He'll build it and God always keeps His promises. He has the plan. He has the power. He will fulfill every one of His promises and bring every one of His people safely home. I was looking for some stats this week uh, to kind of show the growth of the Gospel over the last 2,000 years and instead I found a video which I thought did a much more concise job <laughs> and I'll pop it up on screen in a minute and it shows us uh, the Kingdom of God, God's church here on earth, uh, as around about the time of uh, the biblical things that we read of Jesus' life, death and resurrection and as things kick off in the book of Acts. 
Now, bear in mind, David advanced the kingdom up until that point. By the time Jesus was here, and I, uh, I checked um, uh, my calculations on this this week, and uh, the uh, kingdom of God on earth at that time wasn't the size of York Peninsula, it's about four times the size. But think about it, that's still pretty small. <laughs> but that's how big the kingdom of God extended at that point. That is the starting point of this video. Uh, just watch it up on screen, and also it, uh, you'll probably want to watch it again, so I've put the YouTube link in your leaflets, and have a look, you'll get the impression. I'll close in prayer after that. Let's pray. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that your kingdom here on earth, represented now in local churches like this right across the globe... Uh, is built and sustained by your promises to actually share the great news of Jesus' life, death and resurrection across the globe until the point uh, where you will draw all things together and people from every tribe, tongue and nation on earth will come and worship you. We thank you that uh, the advance of your kingdom is not uh, contingent upon us but relies upon your power and is uh, sustained even against fierce opposition, uh, that your promises that uh, sometimes uh, seem uh, slow to be fulfilled when we have a, a brief snapshot like our lives actually advance across the course of time exactly as you willed it. Please give us great expectations of uh, you continuing to uh, drive forward uh, your agenda of reconciling people from all places to yourself. Uh, so that one day upon Jesus' return we'll be uh, drawn into uh, a wonderful uh, praise and worship and existence with you, removed from this world everything uh, that spoils and destroys, and instead replaced uh, by blessings we cannot yet imagine uh, that endure forever uh, for each person who has placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for the brief snapshot of our lives, the brief snapshot of this week and this coming year, uh, that we would express our trust in you, that we would look uh, with eager expectations uh, for whatever uh, good works you've prepared for us in advance to do, however small they might be. And we pray too uh, for our church family that you might bless us and uh, continue to allow us to be but a drop in a very big ocean. Uh, of people that you are bringing together under the lordship of, our, of Jesus Christ. And we pray as the years continue, uh, you might bless us by allowing us to participate and seeing more people uh, come to know you for the first time, uh, more people uh, coming back to you for the first time in a long time as Jesus builds his church. Please let us rely upon him every day and we thank you for the great promise that he will never leave us in this task. And it's in his precious and very powerful name we bring these prayers to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.